You're listening to Center Circle. Welcome to Center Circle. We're here with Lauren Donaldson, Executive Director of Coaching from Real, Colorado, which is one of the largest youth soccer clubs in the United States with about 5,000 kids. Lauren, welcome to the show. Welcome. I'm glad you have me on. Lauren, why don't you take us back from where you are today and talk about your upbringing and your first exposure to soccer? Well, I mean, it's, I mean, it's very simple. It's in Jamaica. And at the time, there wasn't much. There was soccer and cricket and some table tennis. Track and field was big. You know, and I remember that when I was about maybe 12, I really got, you know, I really picked up the game and liked the game. Actually, I liked sports in general. I'm just in a brief synopsis. I played my first game when, when I was 13. You know, kids here play their first game when they're six. I played my six or five. I played my first game when I was 13 years old. And I was a goalkeeper. Got scored on a couple of times, and I said, I don't like this. Actually, I was a field player, but I was also the best goalkeeper. So, so they stuck me in goal. And then, you know, from there, I was playing at what we call in Jamaica, Papine Junior Secondary School. It was below the high school level. But then I moved on to high school, Kingston College, where I think I encountered maybe one of, one of the greatest human beings that ever hit the circuit in Jamaica. His name was George Thompson, and he was my coach. First, it was jump, um, Trevor Jumpiaris, who still who was still currently coaching at Kingston College. But then I, I moved on to George Thompson, and he was a big influence in my life, football-wise, soccer-wise. And how did he turn it around for you as far as getting more of your interest into the sport? Well, you know, I, I admire him because his demeanor was very good. And he, and he was a very good, he was a left-footed player. And I was a right-footed player, and I always said I wanted my right foot to be as good as his left foot, because he he always put me in competition, you know, after practice, and we always stay out there, you know, you know, sometime for an hour just striking balls, and he's challenging me, and I like that. You know, few other guys, and you know, we would do that on a daily basis during the entire summer. So, so my left foot almost became better than my right foot, you know, by just imitating him as a coach, showing me different stuff. But also, he was, a, he was a good human being, you know. Whatever you needed in life, he would make sure that he tried to help all the young kids, you know, whether it's, you know, a bus fare, a ride home, breakfast, whatever it was, he tried to facilitate it. Well, it sounds like he's the quintessential role model for your position today as director of coaching. Yeah, I actually did admire him a lot. And, and then when I move on to my club coach, who was very similar to him, um, Leighton Duncan, I mean, and these guys are passed on now. He was another outstanding human being in Jamaica, and I think those two human beings, their vision for foot for soccer in Jamaica was I, would, I always say they were 20 years ahead of time, and I still think they were 20 years ahead of time. Whenever I read their material, so both those guys kind of shaped my life, coaching wise. I picked up a lot from them, you know, coaching wise. Now. It's a lot more scientific, so obviously, but just just um, how do you get a group of players to play or how do you organize an organization? I got a lot of that stuff from those guys. Right, and it sounds also like a lot of life lessons as well and as part of the, the coaching of the game. 
Oh yes, I mean, I mean, because they were simple, and they always keep it simple. One of the things I, I admire about both gentlemen, uh, I wish if I could do it like them, they were very good at what they do, their trade. I've never heard them swear. So, and I always said that to people, and they said, well, Lauren, but you swear. I said, but I've never heard these two guys swear, but I admire them. And I really admire them for that because they could get a point across, and they never seems to be too high or too low. And I kind of stay in that mode where you don't get so high or you don't get so low. You know, you try to be very even. You show you will show your show emotion as a coach because you have to change the tempo. You have to change your emotion so 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 players understand that hey, you know what, we're not doing too well. Or you know, we might have a joke. No, we're doing well. So, but I picked up a lot of that stuff from them. How they treat the players, you know, and their mannerism and the respect that we had for them. Mm -hmm. And they taught you how to use emotion for inspiration instead of on the negative angle. Oh yes, oh yeah. I mean, I mean, they were they were very good at that. They were, they, you know, I always call them teachers. They were very good teachers. They were they were very good, as, as you said before, you know, teaching you life lessons. They were very good at forecasting what's going to happen and can pull you out of trouble before it happens. Right. Okay, so after this and having experience with them, what was the next, the next level of your playing? Well, it was also fortunate that George Thompson became the national team coach in Jamaica. By then, I was playing for him in high school. Then I started playing for him, you know, at a national team level, you know, which was also good. Then I, you know, I, when I migrated in late, late 79 and came to the USA, everything changes because there was um my intent was to go in in the old NS, nasl and play at a time it was very difficult for anybody outside europe or south america to get into the nsl so i said the easiest way to get into the nsl i was told by a coach who i played for in college he said you must go to college and then and then you know you will be drafted I mm -hmm. said, okay you know, which I didn't understand fully at the time. So I did. I enrolled in college, and you know, I was I was heavily scouted, and I was going to leave school early and go into the draft. Right. The same coach, the same coach. He's still alive. You know, he said, "Lauren, don't go because this league is going to fold. Finish, finish college." Mm -hmm. And I said, "How do you mean it's going to fold? I mean, I just see the stadium in Vancouver in the final, and they had six, seven thousand people." He said, "No, the league is going under. It's going to go bankrupt." So, you know, his advice kind of helped me out. And I said, okay, you know, and the league did fall. So, you know, I was uh, I was slated to be one of the top draft picks. That didn't happen. So I said, okay, let me just go to school and finish. You know, at that time in the USA, the soccer, there wasn't much now. You know, you have the indoor leagues going on, the MISL and those leagues going on. Right. I, I wasn't going to leave college and go play in the indoor league. I said, you know, I, you know. I started to like college. I started to like what I was getting into. You know, I was still playing soccer on a semi-pro level, you know, for the Denver Kickers. And, you know, all my school was paid for. And I said, you know what, let me just finish up. And, you know, and that's what happened. I just kind of just do that, take it from there, just get my degree. And, you know, after that, the pro league started coming back with the old, you know, there was a league called the APSL. Right, I remember that. So the APSL came back, and, and the guys who were playing in the APSL you know, are guys, a lot of guys who played in the U.S. US 90 World Cup. 
guys like Marcella Balboa, Steve Trichoux, a lot of those kind of guys, John Doyle, and Tab Ramos, a lot of big-name players. Right. Guys like Eric Winalder, and you can go back to a lot of guys, Paul Bravo, a lot of guys who were very impactful with U.S. soccer, played in the APSL. I was playing, but I was getting involved in coaching. Now, what did, did you major in uh, sports or anything at Metro? Yeah, no, no, no. I major, I major, I, I was, um, my emphasis was in sports medicine because I was going to be an athletic trainer. I see, okay. So, so, but, you know, I did my hours and I said, you know what, I really don't want to be a trainer. <laughs> but I had my degree and I was doing my hours and I, so I started to coach heavily. Then I got into, um, I got into um, a, a lot of managed sports, sports management mm-hmm. for Parks and Recs while coaching. But now the game is growing again. The game is evolving in the USA. Things are getting better. The leagues are getting better. So now there's time to, to step out. Now, you know, the A-League was the league at the time. There was a lot of guys who were going overseas. I was coaching in the A-League. My owner was a, you know, multi-multi-millionaire. And he was a German guy by the name of Martin Nixdorf. I think he owns that computer company Nixdorf computer right that was his um that was his dad business in, in germany so major league came about and he was supposed to be we were supposed to be one of the big clubs that were supposed to go into major league the problem with that is the the german owner he didn't buy into the concept of major league because it, it was a single entity league and it's still a single entity so he didn't like the concept he actually i sat in meeting with these guys uh, at the time, it was Alan Rattenberg and Sunil Golati was a little bit involved then too. And when you're saying single entity, Lauren, are you saying that there's is just a pro league? There's no farm system. There's no feeder into it. The single entity is controlled by the league. So the league at the time, you know, there there might have been about three owners. But what happened is, even to this day in Major League, you don't have the freedom to go find exactly the player that you want. If if I go find a player in Jamaica, there is a lot of people who are eligible to get that player. I see. So it, it took away some of the incentive to actually do quality recruiting. Yes. So 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 you know he was he was already losing money. The owner Martin Martin was losing money in the um in the in, in the A League, and you know if he goes to Major League, he's going to lose you know two three million a year. Right. So he said, listen, I will put up a ten million dollar bond just to show you that I'm okay, but I want to do business my way. I don't want you to tell me how to spend my money. You say, give me a salary cap and we spend our money the way we want to. I hire who we want to. But but at the time, Major League was coming around, they see it a lot different. There was um, there was a lot of stuff that they were looking at that he didn't agree with. You know, I mean, obviously, he's from a rich German tradition, mm-hmm. you know, soccer background so he understand this stuff so he said listen i can spend my own money i don't need to give you my money to lose it if i'm going to lose money i lose it my way right that's what you stand and i and he used to at the time he was so he was that he wasn't happy so he used to call them actually the german he used to call them communists he said this is a communist league <laughs> how can we do a communist league in america right they were now it became a big falling out and you know that all went to pieces so where did that leave you? That leave me that Major League now is going to come into Colorado. 
you know, I had some job offer to leave. I actually had a job offer in, in, in New York to help out and do all that stuff. My kids were young. You know, I have spent a lot of time traveling. I said, you know what, I don't want to leave Colorado yet. I wasn't ready. So I stayed here. Now, there's a major league team here. There's an A-league team here. Something has to give. They can't survive, both of them in this market. Right. Major league is going to be the league because it's backed by the U.S. Federation. So obviously, the, the owner pulled his money out and he left town. So that's when I got involved in youth soccer. I see. Say, you know what? I'm going to just try this. This is different. And I happened to get involved in youth soccer, you know, take over a club. And the evolution of the youth soccer is just starting to grow. You know, it's just everybody is becoming bigger than Major League and it's becoming the biggest thing ever. You know, you know, Nike and Adidas and Puma and all the, and all the um, sponsors and brands are starting to get into it. Involved. Yeah. There was just, it, 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 there was just millions of kids playing. And big money to be made. And big money to be made. And mom and dad and sisters and brother, everybody's wearing these uniforms. So now it just exploded at that time. So, and, but actually, and I'm looking back from that time, which is about 13, 14 years ago, to now, it's a hundred times different now than it was then. It's so much, it's so much better mm-hmm. at the high level. And that must be partly because of contributions like people like you have made and being in the right place at the right time. And clearly you had a lot of connections in Colorado. You were, you know, the face of soccer there. You had gone to college there. You were involved in the pro leagues. People knew you. Were you the obvious choice to be the director of coaching at the youth level? Yeah. When, you know, when this one, actually, I, um, I was going to leave town and go into the pros. And there was a, there was a lot of guys that I, that I did go to school with and they had kids playing. And they say, hey, loan this club, and I know you know some of the coaches, this club needs somebody who can just step in, somebody who, who understands, you know, child development and everything else that goes with, you know, making a, a player a player. And they said, you know what, help us out. Because, that, because there was um, some embezzlement going on with the club. And I said, if I come in, I'm going to change the name, I'm going to change the uniform, and I'm going to change the sponsorship. And that... You know, I was talking to the board. Right, and get, and get a complete fresh start here. Get a fresh start. And they said, no, we can't do it. Do that. And I said, well, if you hire me, I'm going to do it my way. And, you know, and I did some stuff my way. It all worked by going Nike, by changing the name to Real Colorado, and make it more, you know, everybody said, who is this? I mean, who is this new this this new club on the block? Who Who are these guys? Right. You know, and, you know, my first, you know, my first year goal you know, was to just get recognized locally as a club. They know who I am, you know, so I brought in some good coaches from all over the country and just try, try to find some of the guys who played for me, who were involved, who wants to be coaches, young coaches, and say, hey, you know what, we have this project, we're going to do it. But it evolved so fast, we said, hey, listen, we want to make this a national thing. We want to challenge some of the clubs nationally. Well, this must have caused some controversy of you coming in and completely wiping the slate clean. There must have been some residual coaches and organizers who didn't like what was going on. Was there political fallout here? There was a political fallout before I came, and that's why I stepped in, because there was, there was people were getting smarter about it. When I came in, it, it was funny. It, it was funny because all the older players from 15 years to 18, they were all leaving the club. 
they were going to another club who was one of the top clubs in the country. And at the time, they were the top club in the, club in the country. And they were all going. So, but I know a lot of the kids who were leaving because I was in a pro game, so they know who I was. Right. They wanted to stay. The problem to get them to stay, I would have to spend about 95% of my time with about, you know, I don't know, you know, 5% of the kids to get them to stay. And I said, listen, I can't spend 95% of my time with 5% of the kids. Right. That that doesn't work. I said, I want to spend 95% of my time with the 95% of the kids who are here. Okay. And 5% with them. And if the ones stay, then they're okay. So I don't want to spend. So that's what I did. I said, let me spend 95% of the time or 90% of the time with the kids who want to stay. And we can build this now. We can build this from, you know, we can build this from the grassroots. Now, now we can have kids who are who are us, and they you know, and they will respect the program instead of trying to you know, kids who have one foot in and one foot out. I said, let them go. So I don't know these kids, and they say, hey, Lorna, should we stay or should we go? And I said, no, it's better if you guys go because this program is not built for you yet. You know, we can we can help you, but not as not as good as the next club is going to do for you. You so you're better off going because these these guys were looking to. You know, players were looking to get themselves ready for college. We weren't set up for that yet. We right. weren't any good. You were also cr- trying to create something from the ground up, and the way to do that with a new philosophy is with the first-year kids and build them into a system. You want to build them, you know, j- 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 just like that. I mean, so so that's what we do. At the time, I mean, i give you an example. When I take this club, there might have been three or four kids that that – say, goes off to college and play. Now, every single year, we have over 40 kids going to college to play. Wow. And then, you know, some are U.S. national team players and some are pros. So, I mean, so every year, there's over 40 kids going going to college to play. Every single year. Wow, that's that's an incredible stat. All right, Lauren, we're going to have to take a short break, but when we return, we're going to delve into your directing of coaching role at Real Colorado. Welcome back to the show. This is Dan Brotman, and I'm interviewing Lauren Donaldson, Executive Director of Coaching at Real Colorado, one of the most prominent youth soccer clubs in the country. We're discussing with Lauren about the recent decision by U.S. Soccer. If you're a designated academy player, you are now not allowed to play for your high school team. Lauren, what do you make of this? You know what? I, I'm not stopping any of the kids from playing high school soccer. It's just you have to make a choice. Now it's a tough choice. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know. There might be some lawsuits and stuff because, you know, there's some stipulation within it that some kids can play and some kids can't play because of the, you know, private school and kids who are, say, going to a school because of sports. They will not, nobody wants to admit that, say, hey, you know what, I gave this kid a $14,000 scholarship and brought him in from a, you know, a neighborhood, or he couldn't afford to 
go to the school, but he, he, he's in a soccer scholarship. That's exactly what it is. That's a big point. But what was the start of this academy system? How did all of this take place where the United States soccer decided we need an academy system? I guess we're going to start it underneath. Well, well they, they, they had a good look of what's going on in the club system. Okay? The first thing they say, there were just too many games, and there was too many games that are meaningless. Okay, were they correct? They were 100% correct. There were just too many games. You know, you're playing these tournaments and you play two games in one day. And over a weekend, you will play six games and you're dead tired and they're meaningless. Now, they look at where we were as a country developing in this game. If we want to be a top-notch country at soccer, then they have to come up with something drastic. And we weren't producing the players like other countries. And every other country's system were different. So they kind of look at those systems and look at these countries and come up with a model that fits the USA. You know, now we don't know yet, but I can tell you right now, by doing it for the last four or five years, I think it's make a big improvement in the game. But you won't see that. I think, I think, I think you have to wait about eight, you know, seven, eight years before you see the fruits. You know, you know. You know, when, when these kids now who are playing are 23, 24, 25, then you say, did it really work or is it working? But I think it's working right now just looking at it. And the competition that we play, I mean, all through the year, is very exciting because, you know, normally here I would have a very good team and we might get, say, three or four good games in a season. Now we're going to have 25, 30 games that are quality game in a season. So it makes a lot of difference. I see that. And the the idea was to base it on a lot of what the European academies were doing and then bring it over here and try to implement it. The problem was, as we mentioned before, the you ran into the roadblock of scholastic versus club soccer. Now, as you're, you just said, you're already seeing it starting to pay some dividends. And one of the things that was the biggest critiques of American soccer was our men's national team was never really been able to truly compete on the world stage. Here we have, you know, 250 million people in our country and Spain, who's got a fifth of the population, constantly beats us. So they they cited a lot of times, Lauren, that it was the coaching and the development here that was the problem. So obviously, we're making some changes in that with this academy system. However, to me, my counter to all this was, look at the women's national team. The women's national team is always ranked in the top three. They've won World Cups. They've won the Olympics. They're certainly having you know, success on the world stage. And they're using a lot of the same coaches, a lot of the same coaching philosophies. Why are they different? To me, my observation was it was because the U.S.'s best male athletes don't play the sport. If you're a great athlete and you're coming up and let's say you're from an impoverished background, you're not going to go play soccer. Even though your parents might have been part of their culture and playing soccer, you're not going to play because you're going to go to a sport where you can actually earn a living and maybe not only support yourself, but support your family. You're going to go to basketball. You're going to go to football. You're going to go to baseball. You're not going to go to soccer. So to me, it was never necessarily the development here so much as 
our best athletes weren't playing the game. What's your take on that? I agree, and I, you know, I agree part of it that our best athletes are not playing. But again, I have seen where a lot of our best athletes, so-called best athletes, whether it's a basketball player, try to play. Soccer is a very difficult, you know, you know, and they just didn't succeed. So I mean, most American kids, you know, they, you know, they're once they start walking, it was, you know, their coordination was eyes, eye-hand coordination. Every other country was feet and, I mean, feet high coordination. So we start there. But to say, the, the thing about our best athletes are not playing, yes and no. I think we have some very good athletes who are still playing now, and I think there's better athletes who are coming in now. And if you look at the last four or five years, what I see, because there's, a, there's an influx of um, immigrants in this country now, and all these kids are playing, whether it's, you know, whether it's from Africa or the Caribbean, that's what they grew up with, and they're all playing. So we're having some very, very good athletes, and that's why I say it's going to be very difficult to judge it in five years. And I would say uh, seven, eight years, and I would say, then we're going to see some of the fruits. Um, on the women's side, we were miles ahead. Ten years ago, we were miles ahead of the rest of the world. Not so, not so much now. But why were we miles ahead, Lauren? If we, we, we were miles ahead because we were the pioneers, and in 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 other country, it was. I mean, and, and people still, it was tabooed in in a lot of countries that you know, female doesn't do this. But in this country, it's accepted from your two years old as a as a little girl, you're playing soccer. Now, a lot of countries like the Japanese and the Germans and the Swedish and all these countries, the gap, uh, even Brazil, you know. And the Brazilian game in Brazil, nobody cares for it, but the Brazilian girls are very good. So we were miles ahead because we have the masses playing, and we spend so much time playing it. But the other countries have closed the gap because they're playing a lot more. I see. So it's you thought that they were underdeveloped while we we had some sort of infrastructure in place. Yeah, yeah, we were we were miles ahead with you know with our structure, with our coaching. Okay, with our philosophy, you know, everything and the amount of money we put into it. This country didn't do that. Now, and, and, you know, nobody had a club system like the way we do. We were the only one in the world with a club system that, you know, a five-year-old can come out and say, I'm playing soccer in a club. No, it still doesn't happen in Brazil. So, so they start, they, they were starting at a very late, late, late age. Now they're putting those structures in in. in in other countries, especially developed countries. And they have closed the gap on our girls. You know, the, the last few World Cups that we play, we haven't won any. The last one we won, actually, you know, it, it, was, it, it was 2008, the Under-20 World Cup. But we have missed World Cup qualifiers. We, we got knocked out of the U-17. This time we qualify. The one before this two years ago, we got knocked out. The USA got knocked out. Right. And we could put, okay, don't don't get me wrong. We could put in the U17 World Cup, we could put 20 teams together or more or 30 teams and they would beat most country. They would be, we could, maybe 50 teams that we could put as in in a World Cup and they're going to finish, you know, eight of them are, are going to finish in the top 10. If, you know, if, if we could put that many teams in, okay? So there's an abundance of players. The problem is, how do you select them? Because there's too many. Same thing on the guy's side. We have a lot of good players. We don't have exceptional players. 
So it's very, it's very hard. What we're trying to create now, how do we get the exceptional players? How do we do that? I think that comes from hours of training and the know-how, and we have to get the, the right coaches in now to, to, to develop that. But there's also a big part of our soccer. You know, in the USA, in every other country, it's free. In the USA, the better you, the better, if you're a good player, the better you becomes, the more you pay. Right. Because you start paying more for traveling, more, more for ODP and more for, you know. So, you know, you start becoming a very good player when you start paying more money. In every other country, if you're a good player, player you don't even buy a pair of shoes. You, you get everything free. Right. All right. I want to talk about this, but we have to take a short break. Okay. Welcome back to the show. We're on with Lauren Donaldson. We're talking about the academy system. Lauren was just touching on how much of youth soccer is now pay for play. Where in other countries, if you're a top player, it's a free ride from the moment they've discovered that you've got talent. And as you have experienced, Lauren, with your academy teams and the extensive travel that you have to do, that is a big problem. Yeah, that's a big problem. Now, there's two parts of the academy now. You have the major league teams who are fully funded, but but there's over 80 academy teams, and there's about maybe 15, 16 major league teams in that. Now, if you pull the major league teams out and say go play by yourself, they can't do it because this country is too vast. So they need the rest of the teams, you know, to make this up so we can get groups in the, you know, groups of eight and groups of eight in California and Texas and just making sure that, that the travel is not as much. But we do travel a lot, especially us all out here. Now, the major league teams, by major league standard now, they're fully funded. And I think it's mandated by major league that all major league team has to be fully funded academy teams. A regular club amateur team like us are not, are not funded. The kids have to pay. Yes, do we, we do get scholarship money from kind donors and stuff like that. Yes, we do some fundraising for some of the kids to find a way to play. But we just get money mostly from just anonymous donors. So now, to travel, we have to travel as an academy team all over the USA. Um, the next coming season, we have nine or ten trips by plane. Okay, so and we're taking two teams. So that's going to be about 34 players traveling every, you know, 10 times. It's a lot of money. If we have to pay that as a club, each team is going to be about 200000 
So we can't afford that. So how, what does that break down per player? It's going to break down to, per player to, to about 6,000, 6,000, 7,000. Per year? Per year. Because we actually find a way how to help them with the travel, you know, you know, by, because we know where we're going so we can find a cheaper plane. And when we travel, you know, we, we manage the food and manage the way we eat. We don't go out a lot. We buy a lot of groceries and we make our own sandwich. And so, so we do a lot of stuff to shave a lot of money off. You know, because regularly, if if I'm going to Miami with a team or to Disney, which you know that we used to do, you know, per player, just just to go to the Disney tournament from here, you know, in December when flight is up, it's gonna be between a thousand to twelve hundred dollars per player. So, so some clubs have to travel a lot, and we're not the only one. You know, the clubs like in Seattle and those clubs. You know, we're landlocked, so we got to do a lot of traveling. The clubs on the East Coast, they can go up and down the coast. The clubs in, in, in California, they can go up. They have to travel three or four times. We have to travel nine or ten times, you know, by plane. So it's a massive difference at the amount of money some clubs spend, you know, and some don't. And you're in a major market. There's a lot of players that are quite good that are in rural markets that don't even have an academy team that they're close to. And a lot of times, you know, we, we have kids in our market who travels, you know, one way, two hours every day for training. So, and I know there's a lot of markets where kids travel all over, two, three hours for training. So those kids who are in these minor markets are probably looking to their scholastic endeavors to really showcase their talents. Whereas now that's kind of been marginalized by saying, we don't want our best players playing for high schools, we want to play in our academy teams, but some of these players from some of these minor markets only have the scholastic opportunity. So where does that leave us? That leaves us to very good scouting because the kid in a small market and if the kid is at, at, at a national team level, you know, somewhere along the line, well, you know, the national team is trying to find those kids. And it's not their, it's not their fault. If they were close to an academy team, they would play in academy. So... It's very difficult for those teams to get the recognition that they deserve because, you know, as you say, because they're in such a market far away from an academy team. Now, the other part of it, too, most of the college coaches, they do go to the academy games. That's where they scout because, you know, an academy game or or an academy tournament is going to have 99% of the best players in the country. So that ends up being a big catch-22 for these kids. So, yeah. So it's very difficult. You can have a, you can have a fantastic player in a market that doesn't have, doesn't have an academy team, okay? And sometimes, as a college coach, how do you know this kid is good? He's never played against an academy team. Right. And he's only been developed by his high school coach. Some of these kids, even if these guys eventually do get to the academy team, there might be two or three years ahead where these kids have been playing for 10 months out of the year with top coaches in the academy system. And these kids have been just playing with their high school scholastic coach, which doesn't have the same level of talent as some of the coaches in the academies. How do they? But, but one other thing I want to do, though, there's, there, there, there are still a lot of academy teams, non, non-academy clubs that are very, very good coaches. I mean, I know a lot of them, and they are very good players, and they know how to make a player better. There are some high school that are very good coaches, 
you know. So and that is so, true. You're you're so, absolutely so, yeah. right. So I mean, but 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 another academy club. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of them with very good coaches. I mean, they get very good coaching. The teams are good, and they're actually some of them are much better than the academy teams. Because they have nowhere to go, so every you know everybody says, you know what, let's just go to this team, and we all just form a good teams, and you know, so we so we can showcase ourselves properly. Before the academy, the kids were all spread out; they're all over the place. Three good players on this team, three on the other team, three. Now, everybody's coming together and said, you know what, let's put you know oranges with oranges, apples with apples. The best players with the best player. Even even the non-academy teams are doing that and I give them a lot of credit for finding a way to make sure they're still a part of the market. And these coaches are clearly educating themselves with uh, National Soccer Coaches Association of America, which you're you're very involved with. Yeah, I mean I you know, I did a lot of teaching, you know, for you know, ten, twelve, fifteen years with the National Soccer Coaches Association and, you know, I haven't done any in the past couple of years because of you know, just run out of time. I'm spending more time going back and forth to Jamaica, trying to make sure some of those kids down there are, you know, getting getting more out of the sport and just trying to help, you know, where where wherever I can help. But you want to give back, clearly. That's why you contributed to the National Soccer Coaches Association of America. And what are you doing exactly in Jamaica, Lauren? There's a project in Jamaica which is which I'm very interested about right now. There's a there's a place down there, and it's called Treasure Beach Sports Park. And we're just trying to help kids down there. I mean, kids, I mean, the guy who does it is, 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 you know, Jason, a very good guy. You know, and it's in Treasure Beach. It's in St. Elizabeth. And what we're trying to do is just create an academy system down there and just create a system down there where we can take teams down there and play that we can expose of tournaments, you know, just different stuff that Jamaica has never seen before, you know. They, and, and then trying to get kids down there who need just the basic equipment, you know. I, I'm i in a collection drive now with my club that I'm going to just send a bunch of shoes and stuff down there. I'm actually putting everything together, and I'm going to ship it down to them. You know, stuff like that, just making sure that a kid who needs a pair of shoes or something that we we take for granted over here. Right. He can have a pair of shoes, to, you know. A soccer ball, right. shin guards, yeah. just soccer your basic ball, equipment. Guard, the stuff we take for granted over here. And and, and and as a club, you know, we you know all we have to do is just send an email out and just say, bring your stuff in, and we just collect it and just write to yours. You know, not just to Jamaica, because I give a lot of stuff to guys who are going to Africa. If they call me up and I say, okay, I will do a collection drive for you. But the project in Jamaica is is very exciting because this is the first project in Jamaica where there's fields, there's a beach, there's there's place for people to stay. It's the full package. is is it's right there, and it's a sports park, and it's not just soccer. I mean, they have tennis courts, they have basketball, they do different stuff. You know, it's kind of like a sports tourism kind of deal. Right. In Saint Elizabeth, and it's at a place called Jake's, and Jake's. Just to give you a little bit of history on Jake's, um, Jason, Jason, the owner right now, the CEO, his dad was was the person who was the, the director of the movie The Harder They Come with, with Jimmy Cliff. So his dad directed that movie. And, you know, his dad stayed in Jamaica because he liked it. And his dad passed away. So Jason is now in charge of the operation. And Jason's vision is to, you know, 
bring sports to Jamaica at a high level and bring people in, you know, to enjoy the country and just enjoy sports. And he's very, very interested in kids. He does a lot of stuff for kids in St. Elizabeth, in, in that Treasure Beach area. And it's a nice, a beautiful area. So, uh, I mean, I've stopped down there a couple of times and, you know, looking to go back and, you know, just trying to touch some of these kids and just trying to help wherever I can help. And are you bringing a lot of stuff with my high school down there and just trying to get these guys going and just trying to help out where I can help. Right. Are you bringing any of your players from Real Colorado down there as well? Well, one of the things that we're trying to talk that we're talking about right now is saying, you know, how can we get a preseason down there? <laughs> can we get if we can get the donation, we would take a team down there and just do a preseason down there and just expose these kids to what it's like to watch a 10 year old kid play and he can't afford a pair of shoes. You know, just 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 so they can just see that kind of stuff. Yeah, more also a cultural exchange there as well. An exchange thing that they can just see and just they can have a good friend down there and see and and just see how people, you know, will treat them on the other side. How much uh, how much they will accept them. Right. And how much they can do when they come back and say, "Hey, I'm not going to throw that shoe out." I have a shoe. I just wear it once. I'm going to send it down to so and so, and I have a bunch in my closet I never wear. Because they don't understand when you tell them that don't throw it away. It didn't fit you. You didn't like it. You know, just bring it in. Bring it to the office, and we will get somebody else to wear it. Mm. Even in this country, people need it. Mm-hmm. It's great. And Lauren, this is just another thing where you're trying to give back to Jamaica. I understand that you're the co-founder of the Black Soccer Coaches Association of America. Yes, that was back in the back in the days. We were. It was you know myself, Lincoln Phillips, you know. And a few other guys. We were we were in Washington D.C. at our NSCA convention, and the 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 soccer association wasn't to separate blacks from whites or from you know from Latino. It was to bring them in into the system because there was a lot of uh, you know back then. I know a lot of Jamaicans and Trinidadian and Nigerians and whatever, and we all we, they all came over to the country and they and and they all just see soccer as not a sports that the American know how to teach. And I said, no, 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 no. They actually do know how to do it. So we stay on the outside looking in at all times. And we couldn't, we didn't know how to get involved. So I said, listen, I mean, the easiest way to get involved is to form, get people together with the knowledge, and then we can go out to some of those communities and just reach out to people. When we started the first year, it was, mm, I would say, you know, ten of us just saying yes, and we were just beating our chest and just and just moving. By the time the second year, maybe I think we had about you know fifty members. You know, now it's over a thousand, and and it's a worldwide organization now. It's all over, people from all over. You know, I have done a lot of time in it. You know, and you know I you know I kind of advise when they need advice, you know. Right. There's other people who have stepped up. Because you only can do certain things for so long. And I think it it serves its purpose by, I used to go to the NSCA um, convention in January, and maybe about 15 years ago, there might have been about, I would say, I don't know, 15, 20 black coaches. Now you go there and it's got to be close to a thousand black coaches. So it's, 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 it, it bring everybody together so everybody can have an exchange. You know, I also, you know, you have the women's organization, you have the Latino organization, 
and all these little subgroups just kind of get together so they can just bring it, make it into one. You know, everybody, you know, different culture just come together. And it's uh, and again, as I say, these organizations, these sub-organizations within the NSCAA is very good to bring the sports to the forefront and bring people out who normally wouldn't come out because they don't think it's something that, you know, they want to be a part of because, you know, you have to go in and root them out as coaches. And I always say, if you want good players, there's got to be coaches in the community who are bringing them out. Well, you're raising an interesting point here because there has been some talk about a racial issue going on in soccer clubs in the United States. Now, traditionally, you know, they're run by the local dads of the community. They most likely are white males. And these males who haven't really grown up playing soccer, they really don't have the experience. They're running these clubs. Some of these other ethnic groups may feel kind of ostracized that they're not going to necessarily fit in and their views aren't going to be taken seriously, even though it's been their heritage and soccer has been in their culture for generations. And they may feel that it may be closed off to them. How do you feel about that? Well, no, that's exactly what was going on 10 years ago. And it's still going on in pockets all over the USA, where the, I would call them the immigrants who came in, the black immigrants, okay, still doesn't know how to get in. There's two ways. I always say if they go in and they want to be coaches, they have to go just, you know, just go educate themselves. Just find a way. They didn't know how to do that. And that's, some, that's one of the things I, I had to bring out to a lot of them, you know, when we form form the Black Coaches Association, we say we got to find these pockets and we got to educate all these parents and said, hey, you can go out and you can do all these courses and they will get into the mainstream of coaching and it's fine. But most Caribbean or most African or most, you know, whatever, they will come over and they said, we know more than the American, you know, we, uh, we know more than the American coaches. They will just say that. Right, and they don't want to answer to these guys that are in power in these soccer organizations either. I've seen this in the Latin community over here on the East Coast where they don't want to answer to these groups of people and they kind of almost start their own soccer clubs, their own leagues, and they try to remain separate when really the power is bringing everybody together. Well, yeah, and that's why you see all these little branches of leagues and everybody breaks off and do their own thing. The, the, the communities that understand what's going on, you know, the Texas, the Colorado, a lot of the small clubs are just saying, you know what, we have done it wrong in the past. Let's just get, you know, let's just join, let's just merge these clubs and we can come under one umbrella. With it. You know, it doesn't matter if you're black, white, Latino, whatever it is, and let's just share the knowledge and do it. It's still, there's pockets, especially back east, where, you know, there's a lot of Caribbean and there's a lot of different influence, a lot of ethnic group. They just forming their own thing still. I, you know what? That's gonna happen for a while, you know, until they, until people are educated about coaching and about you know the game in this country because people still don't know that there's big clubs and there's a lot of stuff that goes on, goes on, you know. And most of these clubs, most of the big clubs are not in the city. It's not in the city, so that's the problem. So an inner city kid have to drive out, you know, outside the city limit. To find, say, a, a a a club if he wants to play in the in the in the DA the the, the academy or the ECNL, they have to come from outside the city to to play. 
there's good player within the city. And that's very difficult because a lot of times they can't get there. Who's going to take them? Mom and dad is working. So that's always a big problem. And we're trying to find a way, you know, how we can, um, you know, do what we're doing and also have an inner city club and just try to find a way how we can merge them. Sometimes the, um, the suburban clubs go in the inner city and practice. And sometimes the inner city kids come to the suburban practice. And I think that's, that's what we're trying to do. How do we do it? It, well, it comes with money. Somebody has to sponsor it. Somebody has to, has to help help the inner city do it. How can we break that fear of the suburban kid saying, well, I'm not going to go into the inner city and practice because they feel that they're threatened. You know, there's something. There, there's a fear, you know. And if the, if the inner city kid can come into the um, suburban practice whenever they can, we should, as uh, as the suburban kids, should be able to go to the inner city without fear and say, you know what, we want to practice in the inner city. And I think that's the next step. That's the next step of the game in this country that we as club and we as directors and we as um, U.S. soccer, whatever we call ourselves, that's the next step we have to take to make sure the suburb join with the inner city. So what's the next step for Lauren Donaldson? You know, it's a... I was asked that question actually a few days ago, and I said, you know, my next step that I'm trying to do is, I know there's a lot of clubs that have relationships with, say, Manchester United or whatever, okay? You know, we have talked to a lot of clubs like, you know, Juventus, you know, West Ham, a lot of clubs, and I I don't like a lot of the stuff that I'm hearing from some of these clubs. I think we have good players in this country that can play overseas. You know, it's very difficult now because of the labor laws. So my next step, I just got back from Everton, Everton, um, in England. Right. And you know, I would like to form a partnership with a club that our philosophy, you know, you don't have to be a fan of the club, but your philosophy is the same. What are these things you're saying that you don't like hearing? Well, a lot of the clubs, like, would say when they join with the clubs, they think we need camps and they think we need to raise money. And, you know, so, you know, they think, okay, Real Colorado wants, wants, wants to join with a club in Italy because the Italian can come over here and they can do a camp and everybody makes money and all that stuff. And so that's the first thing they say. I don't like that. That's not what I want. Okay. Because if I want to do a camp, I can invite players in that plays in the pros or current players say, Hey, I'm doing a camp. I can put your name on a piece of paper and we can make some money. That's I want it to be for players, exchange of players, exchange for coaches and exchange for their players. The guys who didn't make it at the pro level and he's 17 years old and he didn't make it or he's 18 years old. Can he come over here and can he go to college? There's a few guys who don't make it. Not everybody do make it in those countries right those are the kind of exchange i see i want i mean do we have a talented player that you want i mean i have a player right now who is i mean i can't give a lot of you know i can't talk a lot about it but he's going to be signing in england or somewhere in europe he's 16 years old right and he's a tremendous he's a goalkeeper for the u.s national team he's a national team goalkeeper and he's going to be signing somewhere in europe you know stuff like that you know how can we do do these exchange? How can we do coaching exchange? How can I come over and send some coaches to your club and you can learn and they can learn from you? How can we exchange players in the summer? I have two brilliant players. I want to send them over. Or 
you might have a few players and we have the the academy league going on and you know we play in the summer and you don't can you send us a couple of players and we can just they can play in our league and i think that's the next step we have to take that sounds like a tremendous idea well no yeah and i think that's the idea that we have to tell these clubs say listen our league is good enough that you know what your guys will enjoy it and it would be very culturally good for them to see what's going on you know to live with a family over here and play two months of soccer and then go back in the summer you know and we as coaches can go over and we can share ideas and you know what and we can do some project together i think that's more like it but the, the, what's going on now is everything is you know what how many shirts can you sell as a club learner how many camps can you do and and I said, listen, I can do that if I want to do that. Yeah, and that's just a one-way street. That's a one-way street. I mean, just to line somebody's pocket with money. And I said, that's not the idea I want. I mean, I want an idea where I think there's good players in America. Because I've gone over and see the young players in Manchester United, Arsenal, all over the, all over the world, Juventus, Milan. I've seen the young players over there. I've seen the young players here. There's not a lot of difference between them when they're 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. You know, they start changing at 13, 14, 15, and 16 because they put more hours in. And we're talking about making great players. I don't think we spend a lot of time, these kids spend a lot of time playing. You know, to get great players, you have to put the hours in. You got to play a lot. You got to train a lot. Right. It's that whole 10,000 hours theory. Yeah, you have to train a lot. So we, we don't train a lot. We said, okay, and a lot of time over here, you know, we put these kids on a pedestal. They can't do anything wrong. And you got to break them down when they need to be broken down. And you got to correct them when they need to be corrected. And you have to give them the freedom to play and express themselves. All right, Lauren. Well, I have to, I have to ask you one thing, Lauren. I need a fact check here. Okay? Your brother Vernon told me that he's got skills. And that he was a devastating striker. That's his words. Devastating striker. Is this true? Right and left foot, he could hit it. <laughs> he could put it in the back of the net. So you're confirming it? Oh yeah, no, no, no. He was very good at it. Right and left foot, he could, he could hit it. He could he he could hit it. He could he could strike a ball, both feet. Lauren Donaldson, thank you so much for being on our show. It was a real pleasure having you. I enjoyed it. Anytime. All right, Lauren. Take care. Thanks. Bye bye. Well, that wraps up this week of Center Circle. If you'd like to send us a question or get in touch with us, please send an email to centercircle at soccertraining.tv. Special thanks to this week's guest, Lauren Donaldson, Executive Director of Coaching at Real Colorado. If you'd like to find out more about Lauren and Real Colorado, hit realcolorado.net. I'm Dan Brotman. Thank you for listening. Good night.